Welcome to episode 33 of the Going For Broke Outdoors podcast, the podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. Guys, before we get into today's episode, I want to announce the winner of the Ultimate Mobile Hunting Gear Package Giveaway, which included one Beast Gear Hang-On Tree Stand, four Beast Gear Climbing Sticks with Weight Reduction Holes, and a silencing package from Stealth Outdoors. A huge congratulations to Kyle Grace of Clinton Township, Michigan. You have been selected as the grand prize winner. Congratulations, Kyle. I also want to thank everyone who participated and let all of you know that I plan to do a similar giveaway this fall. Everyone who joins my newsletter and subscribes to my YouTube channel before the next giveaway will receive extra entries into that drawing. I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can join the newsletter. I plan to announce the next giveaway when my YouTube channel reaches 2,000 subscribers, so if you haven't subscribed yet and you'd like some extra entries into that next drawing, be sure to subscribe and join my newsletter before it's too late. On today's podcast, I welcome Dan Infault back to the show. In this episode, Dan and I discuss the topics of resiliency, the importance of surrounding yourself with positive people, postseason scouting using maps and boots on the ground, how long it takes Dan to really figure out how to effectively hunt bedding areas, lessons learned from backtracking bucks in the snow, Dan's tips to target survivor bucks in an upcoming season, and Dan's top postseason scouting tips for new hunters. Last note, before we get started, I want to thank everyone again for listening and the continued support. If you're listening on an audio-only platform like Spotify or Apple Podcast, I would appreciate a review of the podcast on your favorite audio platform. Also, I want to give a shout-out to Uncle Lou at Stealth Outdoors for helping to make this podcast possible. Check out Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Get a jump start on gear preparation for the 2023 season with the products from Stealth Outdoors. Designed from the ground up with a mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Stealth your mobile hunting setup this off-season by visiting www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and place an order today. Now, on to the podcast. All right, today on the podcast, I'm joined by the one and only Dan Infault. Dan, how you doing today? Pretty good. How you doing? I can't complain. Pretty nice weather out here in Montana today, mid-40s, so a little unseasonably warm for this time of year. It's got a good day here, too. Yeah, so it's the first week of February, and I believe this past weekend you actually had your first postseason scouting workshop of 2023, so just curious for anybody that hasn't attended those, how many workshops you got planned for this year, and are there any openings left? I got uh, two more days uh, in two weeks. A week and a half, but they are both booked. We were trying to do a hill country one, but the place I was going to fell through, so I don't know if I'll find one. It's a possibility, but it's getting less and less possible. Okay, well, I'll have to keep an eye out for that just in case. But yeah, I went to two of those in the past and learned a lot from those, so I was just going to try to plug that for you. Anybody that hasn't been to one, great experience and looking through the woods, uh, how you see them, and that was pretty interesting, and it definitely helped me on my learning progression, so it's a it's a good workshop for sure. It was a fun one this time. Uh, Jacob on one of the sheds off of uh, one of the bucks I'm hunting. I saw that on your, I think it was on the Instagram, or I don't know, maybe on the Beast or both, but yeah, the pretty nice looking buck there. You probably saw it everywhere. Jake is showing that off like a trophy. <laughs> <laughs> he's showing that everywhere. Yeah, he's proud. It's pretty exciting to find sheds, and obviously, you know, I grew up in Michigan. It's a lot tougher to find them in the Midwest. I find quite a few out here now just because it's easier. The train's more open, and they last longer, not as many rodents. But finding one in the Midwest, it was always really exciting. Yeah. Well, Dan, the first thing I wanted to discuss today is resilience. 
this will be our fourth podcast of three previously in two seasons ago the fall of 2021 you killed a really good buck early season in wisconsin and this year you did have a few opportunities but unfortunately it didn't quite pan out and you ended up having a long grinding season it seemed like so yep. i would think that's a scenario a lot of a lot of guys find themselves in so what tips do you have for guys in that situation to keep the fire burning into the later stages of the rut and especially the post rut and late season yeah it, it's hard for me i know what keeps me going but i don't know that i can give that to somebody else i fall back on all my past years and all the times i've shot one right at the end and stuff and i always believe in myself you know, that positive attitude is what really keeps me going and keeps me motivated, even when you have bad days or bad weeks or bad months. I always think my next hunt's going to be great, even when it's not. So that's what does it for me, but it's hard to tell somebody that. I think one of the biggest things people can do is stay away from negative people. If you start hanging around with people that are always telling you how bad it is and how bad the hunt is and you know, until you, why are you hunting today? It's hot out. Deer don't move when it's hot. Why are you hunting today? It's the lull, you know, and they always got some excuse or some bring you down kind of attitude. And I think that's everything in life. You don't, you just don't want to hang with people like that. You want that positive vibe and it keeps you positive and it keeps you motivated and moving forward. Yeah, I think that's the voice of experience. It's something that I've tried to implement in my life. And I admittedly had a terrible attitude when I was younger. And as I've got older, exactly that tried to surround myself with more positive people, adopt that myself, and I think I'm much better for it. So great advice there. Yeah, you might have a buddy that's a really great drinking buddy and he's a great friend or whatever and nice to go ice fishing with, but he might be the downfall of your deer hunting. <laughs> yeah, you got to be on the same page or you would like to be on the same page yeah, as exactly. the people you're hunting with. And I found that to be true. I don't know how much you've traveled with friends out of state, but out of state hunts especially – you find out real quick if you guys are on the same page when you get in a more stressful situation or an unknown terrain. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You should probably know who you're going with before you pick somebody for an out-of-state hunt because <laughs> you're kind of stuck with them for a few days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you don't know, you'll find out by the end of that trip for sure. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I actually do way better on those uh, road trips from alone, actually. But it is fun to, for film-wise and stuff, to have people with you. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I went to Iowa last year, I guess two seasons ago now, 2021. And I went alone just because I didn't know anyone that had enough points to draw. And it's a lot easier to stay focused and hunt hard when you're only worrying about yourself. But then you miss out on the camaraderie and stuff. So there's advantages both ways, at least for me. Well, Dan, for the rest of today's podcast, I actually want to focus on postseason scouting because that's the time of year we're in right now. For me, that always starts with maps. And one theme I've heard from you consistently is crossing off 90% of an area when looking at an aerial or a topographical map. So I'd like you to, to describe some features or areas that you almost always rule out when looking at a map. Well, I look at the big hardwoods that are you know, the center of the center of the forest. I look at the ones that have nice, easy routes going in places near parking spots and stuff. What I'm not ruling out is probably easier to describe because I'm ruling out 90%, right? Sure. So I'm ruling out places where people have to cross water to get to relatively deep water, especially like if it goes over their boots, but still in thick cover because um, you have a hard time getting deer to cross open water. They cross water in cover. I'm also looking for a real good terrain that's near the roads in between parking lots. 
where people can't park on the side of the road. They, you know, and they go in from the parking lot, you know, that in between section. I think that's really overlooked. That's where I find a lot of my best bucks, uh, right alongside the road. Otherwise, really hard to navigate to spots. And then the rest of it pretty much gets crossed out. Real quick, I wanted to talk about the overlooked spots specifically and how do you usually find those? I mean, we're talking about maps right now, but are you looking for those overlooked spots on maps? Do you find them more on accident? Let's say you're driving down the road and a big buck crosses in front of you or you hear from a friend. How do you find these spots, these overlooked spots that are producing? Well, you find them in multiple ways. I do find them on maps. I do look at maps and see thick spots. You zoom in and you're like, well, that's between the parking lots, you know. There's crops right across the field they can go into, and I don't think anybody can get in there. There's not really trails going through. It's isolated by water. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. Then I drive there, and maybe it is what I saw on the map. Maybe it's not. You know, sometimes those maps lie to you a little bit. But you get there, you look at it, then you go um, to one of the parking lots, you walk over, you check it out. Sometimes you walk, you drive around slow down the road, and you're looking to see if there's trails crossing going into the crop fields or maybe there's not crop fields across but it's got a good hang out there that could potentially feed into a little oak island or something that's you know isolated between there you know or something some sort of feature so you go in there and you check it out you find if it has beds big rubs and stuff like that and decide whether you want to hunt it i mean we talk about these all the time but a lot of times you get in there and it's not something that really looks all that great then you just move on to the next one you drop that one but you, you know, you got to put a lot of foot, you know, feet on the ground to um, find those spots. But once you find one, you you have it, and uh, you need to build up a lot of those because if you overhunt it, that deer is going to move on, and other deer ain't going to want to bed there either. Great point there about getting in there and looking at it. For me personally, and it sounds like for you too, my postseason scouting starts with maps. But I don't know. I'd hate to put a percentage on it, but I'd say I find one huntable spot for maybe every 10 or 15 spots I check out where I really feel confident. It. And I feel like uh, doing the map work first really narrows down the focus to those good areas. But even then, mm-hmm. most of those good-looking map areas, a huge percentage of those don't pan out as well. Has that been your experience? Yeah, and what I usually do is I map out some areas and I look at them and see if I think it has the type of terrain that will hold the deer. If it don't, maybe I don't even drive over there. I look at a different property. Maybe, you know, one out of five properties is worth looking at. And then when I go look at it, I'll drive around it completely in a circle. And I'll look at everything from the bird's eye view from the road. I'll look at where all the parking lots are. I'll see how it lays out. You know, because sometimes you miss parking lots from map because they blend in or something. I'll see where, you know, houses are. You can see where people are going in and stuff. You can see how, the, you know, how mature the forest is because sometimes you get a bad view of that too. And then I'll physically walk the stuff I have marked, you know, and I'll, I'll go in there and check. And what I'll usually do is I'll walk like a transition line and I'll go in and I'll check some of the stuff that looked really good on the map real fast. And I'll do that, that hard edge and I'll speed scout it. And by speed scouting, what I'm doing is following right on that transition edge, maybe swamp like uh, cattails or dogwood or tamarack meat hardwoods and I'll walk that edge. And if there's anything big in there and I get 400 yards, I'm going to hit a good rub or two. If I'm not hitting any decent rubs, I'm getting out of there. Okay. I'm not even bothering with the whole rest of that property. Because there's a big buck on that property. He's going to be in the stuff that I think is best. If there's no rubs, he's not there. All bucks rub. I'll have guys tell me, I got this property. I know there's big bucks in there. There's 
But there's, I've only seen two rubs in her. Where do I set up? If you've only seen two rubs in her, that buck ain't spending time in her. He's coming off a private or something. All bucks rub. I mean, look at a look at a mature buck when you shoot it. The antlers are polished around that, you know, around the brow tines and the bases from rubbing. They're rubbing trees. So uh, if you're if you're going into that good terrain and you look at that first, if you're not finding the sign, there's no bucks there. But sometimes the sign I'm looking at isn't fresh either. Because I'll look at historical sign as well. One of the things I see a lot with the postseason scouting, one of the mistakes a lot of guys make, especially on uh, uh, swampy terrain where you have like uh, where oaks are really important, like you'll have little isolated patches of oaks on little islands or something, right? And acorns become really important in like early season. A guy will stumble into an area where like that oak island tapers down to a point, and those bucks bed right on that point, and it's pretty obvious that when those acorns are dropping, they're coming in there. And in the Oak Islands, usually those acorns are gone a lot faster than they are in say the hills or hardwoods or something, because there's a smaller number of them. So they eat them up real fast. So we usually only have acorns in September, maybe just into October. So that means that early season is really hot. But you go in there and you find just rubs galore going in there. Well, those red oaks just drop every other year. So the next year that guy goes in there to hunt and there ain't a rub in there. And he's like, well, man, it's, isn't as good as I thought it was. And then he abandons and he comes back the next year scouting and he's like, Oh, I should have hunted here. And he hunts the next year again. You know, um, you got to hunt it on the bad year, the year, right. you know, the year that the acorns are dropping, you know, you got to hunt it the year before you find those rubs. So you got to look at those historical rubs and you got to understand, you know, you got to look at it. You got to do that detective work to really figure out why is that deer here? Not just find a rub and say, okay, there's a rub here. There's a bed there. I'm hunting here. You got to be like, well, why is he here? When's he here? How often is he here? What wind's he here on? You really look at that bed and decipher it or the bedding area, you know? Yeah, obviously that's one of the things that you do really well, and I think you convey that good in the videos and your teaching is asking why and when because I've been guilty of this. I'm sure lots of guys have, especially early on when I started doing postseason scouting, is you get into an area and exactly what you said, you find that sign and you let that excitement overwhelm you and – then you don't think about why is there or why it could be there. You don't think about where you're going to set up, how you're going to access. So it's important to slow down and put all those pieces together while you're in there. Your average guy that really gets good at beast hunting, he does it rapidly because he listens to all the stuff we're talking about. And then he's got this little window here to scout, right? And he goes out and he's like, oh, I'm going to see if this is for real. Cause I don't really believe that I can walk down to the end of these points like this. And there's going to be a bed there. And he walks down there and he's like, Oh my God, look at this bed. It's laid out for a buck here. He's laying here. Perfect. Look at this rub line coming out here. Oh my God, this is just what he said. I'm going to set up right here. I'm going to kill him. And he puts all his eggs in that basket. And what you got to remember is I'm hunting a spot like that almost every week. And I didn't even kill a deer last year. So <laughs> it's not as easy as it seems. You, you have to find that spot. And not get overly excited, get it set up, have it ready, and then go find another one. And you got to do some guesswork on exactly when that buck's there. If you're accurate, you might kill him. If you're, if you're not, you might just miss him. And you might just show up the day he's not there. You know, they're not there every day. And then you get your scent in there, and then the spot's tainted. So you got to have backups. You got to keep moving to, from spot to spot. Yeah, and we've talked about that. One of the things that I've heard you say multiple times is, They've got to be right every time. You've only got to be right once. And if you're hunting an area like that Correct. that has all the ingredients and you do that across the course of a season, the odds are sooner or later you're going to be right. Yep. Well, Dan, one more question on maps. And 
this is something I haven't seen from you, but you may be doing it and I'm just not aware of it. One of the things that I've implemented in the last two years uh, pretty substantially is LiDAR mapping. So I'm curious if you've ever used that. To me, it's very powerful because uh, the unlike a regular topo map where you got 10 or 20 foot elevation differences, LiDAR mapping will show one, two foot contours. So have you used that to look for like subtle islands and swamps or land bridges? Or I, ha- I haven't, but I probably should. I know there was just a time a while back, I got a hold of some mapping that had some really, maybe it's what you're talking about, that had some really fine lines. And it was nice because you could see those uh, in the hill country, you could see those little knobs that you can't see on a regular topo map. Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of times those real big bucks will be on those little tiny knobs. But no, I don't, I haven't been using it. Not that I'm going to tell you what to do, but I'd recommend it in shameless plug here. I do have an article on my website of how to set it up in Cal Topo. So if anyone, uh, yourself included, Dan, is interested in learning how to enable that in Cal Topo. Yeah, I, I would be. I would be interested in that. I used it in Iowa a lot to find benches. So I'm sure, actually, I learned this from the Beast. A lot of times the heads of draws are good crossing areas. Absolutely. I found three or four areas where there were old like retention ponds where they had plowed up a little berm or a dike to hold water and that they had dried up, but the, the dike was still there. And these things had tons of rubs, big tracks going across them and stuff. So yeah, little land bridges. Yep. Yeah, seen them. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't see it on the regular topo, but you can see it on the LIDAR. And that was one of the ways that I keyed in on some of those hill country features. So pretty interesting stuff there. All right, well, let's move on here. On a previous podcast, you mentioned that you've had above average success in your home area despite the high pressure, and you attributed that success to your intimate knowledge of your home turf. Obviously, a large part of obtaining that intimate knowledge of an area is spending time in it postseason. So this is just my personal opinion. The average hunter greatly underestimates the time it takes to obtain that deep understanding. So I'd like you to quantify to the best of your ability the amount of time that you have invested in your home area and how long it took you to really figure out some of your best bedding areas. But before we hear from Dan, I want to take a minute to mention huntingbeastgear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight climbing stick. Beast gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps all in a 2.2 pound package including the fastening strap. Huntingbeastgear.com has also released the game-changing beast gear hang-on tree stand. Designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution with four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all of that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more information or to place your order today, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Now, back to the podcast. Oh, jeez. I would say um, I first started hunting um, marsh behind my house, which I don't hunt as often anymore because now it gets pretty crowded. But when I first started hunting there was about 30 years ago. And I remember the excitement when I got into some big bucks in that area and coming here, not knowing a thing. And that winter, 
going in and trying to learn that whole swamp, walking every edge, walking every island and stuff. And I think it, you know, it was like uh, every single day thing after work, every weekend, the whole spring, you know, into into green up. And I remember I was even still scouting some of it in July. And I felt like I knew that whole marsh. And over the years, I'm still learning some things about it. it, it it's funny. I, I mean, I know I've been in every inch of it, but you still kind of learn how things work. And you go in there and you re-scout some stuff and you see things change over the years too. Especially nowadays. I mean, there's been some drastic changes. This has been some uh, some historical uh, times of change um, in the last few years. And I think a lot of people don't even realize what's going on. But we've got the uh, elm trees all dying off, the ash trees all dying off. The ashes are huge in these swamps. All those points that you hunt that go way out into the swamps were all leafy ash trees. Yeah. And the bucks have been under them from the shade. They've all died, and it's changed all the buck bedding and stuff from what it used to be. So I had to re-scout all that, find out how they moved and where they moved to. Elms are dying, and now we've got an influx of buckthorn. And it's just becoming jungles. It's taking over all the other trees and killing them all out. And uh, the deer love it. It's great deer habitat. really hard to hunt, but it's so bad for the environment, you know. But it's changing everything. The landscape is changing totally. And it's constantly changing. So it used to be you found the veterinary, and I would say that'll always be there as long as you don't overhunt it. It's not the same anymore. I mean, a lot of these veterinaries have changed drastically. Where I killed the Rome legend, I mean, I've killed probably a half dozen real big bucks there. Now it's a ghost town. It doesn't hold a rabbit. Just changes from based on the trees and stuff, you know? Sure. And it's like you read my mind, Dan. My next question was, could you share your experiences adapting to major changes in your home area? For example, logging, housing developments, or in this case, buckthorn and dead ash. I guess the point I was trying to make is, and I'd like to hear what how you're doing it, is things change all the time. So just because you figure out an area uh, in one year or the following year doesn't mean you can just rest on your laurels forever. True. And you never know what's going to change, too. Like uh, I've had properties out here that I just love hunt there all the time, see big bucks there all the time. And one day you get there and there's a big no trespassing sign and you check your onyx and it says it's some property guy's name and you call the DNR and they say, yeah, we sold that. You're like, oh, yeah, that's where I was planning on hunting all fall. You know, when did this go down? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you never know, even on public land, when you're going to lose it. You know, when you're going to have to change, a fire could come through, burn the woods down. You come there one day and they logged it. It's not like they ask permission. So you have to have a lot of eggs in the basket, right? Yeah. And for me, it's gotten to the, it's gotten to the point where I scout a lot of properties. I scout properties I don't even intend to hunt, but I know could hold a big buck because if one shows up, I want to be able to go in there with knowledge because I tend to hunt more now for big bucks for a certain buck than I do just to get a deer. And you really can't on public land, you're a fool if you just keep hunting the same property. Because that same property will not have the same bucks every year. Sooner or later, those bucks get killed. Some properties hold good bucks almost every year. There's a lot of properties in a lot of areas where you got to go find a property that has a big buck on it. So I want to know all the properties in, in a, um, like a 50-mile radius of my house. I want to know all the bedding in them. And anytime I hear about a buck, I can go over and start looking for it. I find a buck. I throw a camera in an area because I heard a rumor or something and I pick up a buck that I think I want to shoot that buck. 
at least I got a starting point. I know where those bedding areas are. In there. I got more of a starting point than anybody else because I've already scouted her. I know how, I know how to, the area works, you know. Speaking of having a leg up, it's like I said, Dan, I think you're psychic today. <laughs> I wanted to talk about using cameras <laughs> for postseason and specifically to inventory survivors. Now, there's a lot of ways to find survivors, but cameras is probably one of the more popular ones for sure. So first of all, I'd like to know, are you doing that to any extent? Kind of, but not really uh, in the way you're thinking. I just stopped hunting just recently. Yeah. I mean, it ended a week ago. So I've had cameras out and, and some of them are still out and monitoring. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised. If you follow my videos, you know that, that the 10-pointer I was hunting is still alive. Yep. I do usually hear about the really big bucks that get shot, though. Um, even the ones people try to keep quiet. Somebody usually tells me. And I was a little bit down because there was three big bucks over here I was hunting and the other two got shot. So that was uh, kind of a depressing. And then I didn't, know, I didn't know about this one. And then when he showed up in the camera, I was really happy. And he showed up right at the end of the season. So I'm pretty sure he's, he's alive. Speaking of that buck, that thing looks like a beef with antlers. That's one of the biggest body deer I've ever seen. Yeah, he's a, he's a nice animal. I think I got a really good chance of killing him. What's killing me, you know, you know what's killing me is um, I had kind of a feeling he was coming from a different direction, from a private piece. And then I started getting some rumors he was coming kitty corner from a different way from public. And then when I finally figured it out at the end of the season that he was coming from the public and I went in there and tried to hunt him down, he had already shifted from the winter. But I went in there and found all his beds and stuff and, and where he was living. And it was all stuff that I scouted last spring with Eric and we picked out trees and pinned them and they were right where he was living in those bedding areas and we never hunted them. Like I said, I scout a lot of stuff I never hunt, but maybe talk about that because what I know from you in the past, and maybe this is different late season, but one of your tactics is I might get the acre drawn here, but you say, if you know, there's a buck in there, you're interested you'll throw a stand every 10 acres and move around did you just not have time to get to that area or what kept you out of that area? Or was I it- just didn't believe he was coming from that way. Okay. And I also was working some other deer at the same time. And, uh, there was another guy in the, in the mix that was hunting that deer really aggressively. That was right around me. Okay. I'm regretting some of those decisions. I mean, you, you know, you look back and you say, well, I should have known this and I should have did that. And I should have assumed this and I should not have assumed that, but that's how you grow. And we all do that. I mean, we all have, I, I'm not perfect. I'm not a god or anything. Sure. <laughs> so looking back, I know what you're thinking that I should have just went over and looked at that public and threw a hunt at it. Well, obviously I'm thinking the same thing now, <laughs> but at the time I wasn't, you know. I always make the analogy deer hunting is like poker. You make the best decision you have with incomplete information. So you don't have all the pieces or it'd be easy and obvious. So I understand. It's an educated guess. It's, um, really a great feeling when you guess everything right but you don't always do that yeah me specifically rarely but <laughs> <laughs> so dan back on the the survivor buck topic i imagine at this point in your hunting career you've been aware of a survivor buck going into a following season and i'd be curious let's say as an example i find a survivor in the late season that i want to target the following year in your opinion how likely is that buck to be in the same area and specifically maybe break it down by early season rut and late season? Well, um, those bucks seem to do the same routines year after year. I find that um, 
pretty often that if I leave a buck in some place, that's where he's going to be when I come back for him the next year. However, you know, they might have an early season area and then they have a rut area, you know, and they shift around a little bit, but they're in the same areas, you know, um, especially with mature bucks. Now, when you get to, to like uh, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, I think they, there's still a little bit of shifting around, figure, finding their place. But when they get mature, they seem to lock down into an area. I know that's not all the time. You do get some bucks that just mysteriously disappear. You don't know where they go, and then they come back. You know, like they got big home turfs. But for the most part, most of the mature bucks I find kind of lock down as they get older into a small area. And it's kind of like what people do, right? Yep. I mean, when you're young, you want to go everywhere and stuff, and you see old people just kind of, they just go sit in their house and, yeah, go have fun. You look at, like, um, like these big marshes and stuff I hunt, I, uh, I might know of 100 different bedding areas that hold bucks, 100 different buck bedding areas in, in a particular marsh, and 20 of them will hold mature bucks. Those mature bucks will pick the very best spots. There's certain areas, like in the marsh behind my house, where I've killed mature bucks, a lot of them in certain areas and the whole rest of them, all you ever see is two year olds or one year olds. You, you know what I'm saying? Yep. There's like uh, you, but that takes a long time to, to realize. I mean, you can get help with that by opposite sides of the tracks and stuff, but they tend to uh, be really particular about where they bed. And when they're really particular and they find a good spot, they like holding up there. Well, I'm also interested in, and you kind of alluded to this about scouting that area previously with Eric, during the postseason, so this buck specifically, now the one you're chasing, are you going to spend extra time, or any survivor buck, are you going to spend extra time in that general area during the postseason? And if so, what are some of the best clues that you found chasing bucks that might tip you off here in the home range of that specific deer? Well, um, we don't have like uh, tons of mature bucks around here, so when you get rubs that are waist high or higher, and in this case, when I went in there, I found chest high rubs. And, uh, I would say that that's that buck, knowing on what's survived out there. And basically, the trails he's on are lead right to where I'm get where I was getting the pictures. I mean, it's a, a distance, but they lead right to it. Okay. And uh, they come in and out of the bedding, so I know I know that those rubs aren't random rubs that are done in the middle of the night. There's no decent trees in there, so there's like one or two ratty trees you can get into, but they'll work. So you can tell nobody's been in there hunting. Seems to be a common theme in your areas bigger deer hanging out in bad tree areas. Yeah. You know, uh, I've gotten on tracks and, and uh, like this time of the year, you get on a big bucks track, you start following it through the, through the marsh and you realize really quick that there's millions of trees out there in that buck going through that marsh without going through a huntable tree or past a huntable tree. Like that, that almost doesn't seem coincidental. <laughs> it almost seems like you have to try to try to do that, but they do hang in areas where people don't go, you know? Yeah, and Dan, I, I didn't send you this outline before this podcast, but literally I think we're on the same page today because I also wanted to talk to you about there's a lot of snow on the ground in the Midwest still, and I'd be curious about backtracking bucks in the snow. How often do you do this? What kind of information are you trying to gather using that tactic? Yeah, I want to see where they travel, how they travel through there. And, and you got to remember, too, that bucks are a little like people. Think about when um, certain areas of the woods that you, you find a – you find a woodlot, you go there every now and then, maybe you hunt there five times a year, and you, you, you walk to a certain section. When you walk there, how many different trails do you take? Yeah, you pretty much go the same way every time, don't you? Yep. But when that certain buck you're hunting goes into that woods, you might not go the way all the other deer go. 
but he's going to go the same route that he goes every time. So I want to know where he walks. I want to know how he travels through there. And I want to know where he goes. It's weird, but it's almost like a psychic thing when you're following those things around. I know that sounds kind of funny, but hear me out. You're following that deer's tracks. You kind of get a feel for what he's thinking and why he's doing what he's doing. You know what I mean? You start to get a feel for him. Why is he doing this? Where is he going? What's he doing? And uh, you look at how he goes into his bedding. Look at how he uses the wind. You know, look at where he's laying. Look at how he's coming out of there. I mean, it's a pretty educational thing. The only thing that I would frown upon a little bit with the following the tracks around is they tend to move their beds a little bit when it snows. So they're going to be bedding a little different and stuff. So it's not locked down for where you should hunt or anything, but I still like to learn a lot from those tracks and see where they go and how they go through those woods. Yeah, I've done it a few times and it is pretty interesting and kind of similar, but different. I've found, unfortunately, I've wounded deer a few times. And if you get on a long blood trail, especially of a wounded deer, you can really figure out how they move through the terrain. And specifically, I've found some of my better locations doing that, you know, in future years, going back to how a wounded buck traveled through the terrain that you're hunting. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, a lot of times too, they do bed in the same areas sometimes, especially with new snows. If you haven't had heavy snow for a long time, if you get like a new snow, you follow it down. A lot of times you can find those bedding areas and haunts and those overlooked spots. And I've done that. Found some really good overlooked spots that even I was overlooking by following the deer to them. Yeah, I think that's a probably underutilized tactic that can be pretty important if you have the patience to do it. And it, a lot of times it is tough to stay on the specific track of a deer, especially in a high density area. But if you got some patience or you give it a few outings, you can usually do it. It's amazing because, um, you know, you do seminars, you, you talk to people at events and stuff, and uh, all the people from the South, and you talk about tracking deer down to their veterinarians and stuff, and they, they're like, oh, I wish we could do that here. I do that all the time. And the people up here don't utilize it at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one more question on the survivor buck. So let's say you've got a survivor buck like you do going into next season right now. You scout that area some more during the postseason. You get a better, even better handle on it than you probably do already. What are you going to do towards like the tail end of the postseason into summer? I mean, let's talk about maybe glassing, shining cameras. What's your strategy look like to give you the best odds of getting on that deer early season? Because I know you're a big fan of the early season. Well, my strategy is going to start right now. So now I know where all those, uh, all the bedding areas are where that thing is. I've scouted that particular swamp quite a bit. But I don't know exactly where he's living and where he's not. So I'm going to get in there and I'm going to check out a lot of these spots, go re-scout them. And a lot of these spots, I haven't hunted that section in, in, in years. So I'm going to, um, even though I, I scouted some of it last year, I'm going to go in and I'm going to scout it a lot better now and, and take a real good look at it. And uh, I, got, I already got one clue because uh, Jake found that, that shed. That shed is off that deer from not from this season, but from last season. Oh, okay. So that was almost a mile from where I was hunting them. So I didn't know the deer got that far. So now I'm going to start looking in between there and where I was hunting them. I'm going to start looking in that section. And I'm going to look at all the bedding. And I'm going to figure out where I want to be. I'm going to plan some setups in those spots. And then I'm going to drop some cameras. And during the summer, I'm going to do some shining and some glassing in the fields that are around by. And uh, I'm going to monitor from a distance. You know, and go into the hunting season with a plan to hunt down those bedding areas where I think he's living 
And I will also use any intel I get there in the summer from those cameras or from the roads or, and use that to even fine tune more where he's at. There's a good chance I don't see him with the glasses. I do think I'll get camera pictures of him. Okay. Because I did last year. But I'll move, I'll put even more cameras out in more positions now that I got a general direction of where he's hanging, you know? Sure. And, uh, I'll just keep fine tuning it, you know? I think I got a pretty good chance of getting a crack at him this fall. If somebody else doesn't take him out before me. All right. So on this specific deer, it sounds like maybe it disappeared early season or maybe you're on other bucks and you found it late season, but obviously it's a deer from the pictures. If people haven't seen it, it's definitely a deer worth targeting. Are you going to try to get on this deer <laughs> or find, figure it out over the summer and through the postseason to, to hunt that deer early season if possible? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be on them right off the bat, probably, unless I run into something bigger. Sure. And then, uh, I just want to touch on, you said Jacob found the shed. It's in uh, the latest video from the, uh, scouting workshop or the pictures at least. Mm -hmm. Speaking of sheds, do you place any importance on sheds? Obviously here, it gave you a pretty good clue that he's at least part of his range sometimes is a mile away. So yeah, you you know, a little bit. I mean, the main thing they do is tell me that the deer's still alive. I think a lot of people put too much to the sheds. They spend their, their whole spring out in sheds. They don't learn any bedding areas. I mean, sheds are just something fun that you find when you're, you're scouting to me. I don't go out spending days searching for sheds. It's just not me. I, I got nothing against it. But I really, I don't even bend over and pick up small ones. I mean, I only have interest if it's, if it's a really cool looking one or a big one or something, you know. But they tell me the deer is still alive, you know, or where he's at. Or um, The sheds are usually more on food sources and stuff. And when they're dropping antlers, they're usually um, desperation mode more. You learn feeding. So I'm not, I don't put a lot of stock into where they drop the sheds, but he's still in the area. Sure. Big clue that he's alive, and he, he was at least in that specific area at one point. That's the biggest thing. He's still alive. He was alive when he lost his antlers. He's probably going to be alive growing in the next set, and he's probably going to be alive when you hunt him. Yeah, that's exciting. I had a biologist on uh, early on episode five, I think, guy from Penn State that runs their deer blog, and this is Pennsylvania, but I imagine it applies again across most of the Midwest, except maybe like the Upper Peninsula or northern Minnesota where you get super deep cold or super deep snow and super cold, but he said the average survival rate for an adult deer is like 95 to 97%, and 2.5% of that is like car deer collision mortality. So if he's still alive, there's a real good chance he's going to be next year. What I find around here is the mature bucks got a real high survival rate. I mean, it's they usually don't get killed. You know, that sounds funny, but once they get to a certain age, hunters don't kill them, let's put it like that. Sure. Most of them get car killed or something. They're just eventually, after a long period of time, you just stop seeing them. But this year was the exception where a couple of the mature ones I was after got shot. Well, Dan, uh, to finish out here, one or two more questions. But one thing I'd be curious to know is obviously you're a wealth of experience at this point, and you share your experience on the forum and on your, your YouTube, which is great. Let's say I'm a new guy. I'm one, two, three years into hunting. Maybe I've killed a deer or two, maybe a, maybe a buck. And I'm going out this year, maybe for the first time, to really get serious about postseason scouting. Give me two or three of your best tips. What should I be looking for to get the most bang for my buck? For sure, be looking for those overlooked spots. Secondly, um, follow transition edges. Don't go trying to scout the whole freaking woods. But find a lot of spots. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Those are probably the top ones. You've talked specifically, too, and uh, just to add on to that about 
if you are new hunt each of those spots like i like your advice three times early season rut and late season to get a handle on when those are active because it comes across from your experience obviously you've picked up on a lot of the more minute details that can kind of clue you in like you talked about the points uh the oak points where they're all rubbed up but that earlier season sign uh it's mm-hmm. i think it's harder to discern at least it was for me when you're first getting started but by doing that three sit rotation like you recommend you can probably get a better handle on when those areas are active right and, and you know um even with all the time I've, I've spent looking at these bedding areas i mean i've got a point that i've been hunting for close to 30 years a point in a marsh that has an oak flat up from it and in early season, it would fill up with rubs whenever the acorns were on those oak trees. So I'd hunt it every other year because the red oaks dropping every other year when those bucks are coming through and when those rubs would open up. So I'd walk through, check the rubs, the rubs open up, I'd go down there and hunt. And I had some really good early season hunts. And I always looked at that as an early season spot. And then uh, one year, a local hunter was talking to me, a young guy that I met out in the woods. And he told me he put a cell cam there during the rut or pretty much he put it in there early season, left it through the rut. And he said for 10 days straight, he had, he had mature bucks on the camera every day. And I was like, really? <laughs> and then I put a camera in there uh, after he wasn't going in there anymore. And sure enough, I started picking up a lot of rut activity. And uh, this last year, I mean, uh, I almost got a 10 pointer. He came in a little too late um, right there and had a lot of activity in rut. So, by not hunting that three times, I just was assuming that that was an early season spot. It looked like an early season spot. Well, it's good to hear that even at this point, Dan Infault still outthinks himself. I know, <laughs> I know I've been guilty of that plenty <laughs> myself, but uh, yeah, like you said, you're always learning. But that three se- that three times a season thing is a good is a good method. That and um, if if you know a buck's in an area, and, and you you touched on this earlier, hunt that area down. Don't just hunt one area of it. Hunt the area down. Find them. If you're not seeing them, you're not where he's at. So, you, you know, like break it up into 10 acre parcels because if you're within 10 acres of them, you're probably going to hear or see them. And 10 acres is pretty big. So you break up that area. It, it might be 20, 30 hunts, right? Yeah. And like you said, they're pretty specific, especially when they get older, about certain travel routes in certain areas. So if you're not in the 10 acres he's in, even if you're in the general area, let's say a half mile, you probably never see that deer. Very, very low odds. Yeah. One of, one of the mistakes I see that people make that goes the opposite direction is they spread themselves out too far. They might like have like, cause they scout all these different properties. They might have like seven or eight different properties that they hunt and they're hunting one buck here, one buck over there and one buck over there. And they, they hunt this buck one or two days. Then they go over there and then when they come back, they don't know where this one is. And, I think if you're onto a big buck, hunt that area down. You're more likely to get them if you just repeatedly hunt all the bedding in that area and hunt that deer down than trying to randomly put yourself all over the place. That's great advice and something when I first joined the Beast, I think I just didn't understand what was communicated effectively because I was on the program of I'm going to hunt a fresh area every time and then even if I saw a buck I wanted to shoot, I'd keep moving. Now I do exactly what you said. I move until I find one and then I hunt that area until I either get it or I burn it out. And, and then I start moving again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I got a lot of heat on that. Um, that one video I did, I think it's called hunting down a dream because I, I moved around so much in one little area while I was on top buck and I, and I literally, you know, hunted them down 
Yeah. So that's how I do it. And, uh, uh, you might see me in some of my videos when I'm not really onto something real big where I hop all around, all over the place in the early season. But what I'll do is I'll go into an area and I'll try a spot that I know is a really good spot. And when I go in there, I'll be looking at the rubs, looking at the scrapes, seeing if there's any sign. And I'll hunt it. And if I don't see nothing, and I don't see much for a sign. I'm out of there and into the next one. And I run into an area and I see waist high rubs. And all of a sudden I start throwing some concentration over there. You know, these days, usually I'm on to a couple of big bucks, but you know, I still do some of that where I kind of try to locate some, you know, and especially certain years when I'm having a better year, you know? Sure. They, uh, they can't all be diamonds. That's for sure. Right. But when you do get onto something, then you need to hunt it down and kill it. I think that's great advice, especially for guys that are newer to this style, because I think from what I've seen, just myself, my friends, I think that's a mistake we all made was here's what happened to me. I was hunting very conventionally. I did have a few stand rotation, like four or five permanent stands that I was rotating through. And then like the year before I got on the beast, I decided I had a climb or two, but I decided I couldn't get a lot of places I wanted to. And uh, goes right hand in hand with the beast is I actually bought a lone wolf before I joined their hang on and sticks. And then I got on the beast and I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Well, what happened to me is I started moving around in that first season that I went fully mobile, which was like maybe 2013, 2012, somewhere. And it's been, been a decade. My best season prior to that, I'd seen like five or six bucks all season. And that first season, I literally saw like 35. Now, a lot of them were scrubbers. But just the fact that I had seen that many bucks got me super excited to the point that all I wanted to do was move around to a different spot every time. And and I got a little, <laughs> right, I got right. a little too excited about that. And like you said, I, I didn't stop when I got on a good one to, to maybe bounce around that 40, 80, a hundred acres, whatever it was. And, and it was easy to go overboard with that. Yeah. Another one of the big mistakes I see is, um, guys are like, they don't want to burn out a spot in early season. So they wait for rut and that's great if it's a rut spot, but take the point how much I hunt, I hunt the whole season, right? Yep. And I think it's something like seven out of my top 10 bucks for the first week of the season. Yeah, I'm definitely a huge fan. Uh, I wasn't able to hunt September because Michigan has a October 1st opener. But now that I live out west, we're fortunate here. We have a really early opener. It's the first Saturday in September. And I've killed a couple of real nice bucks the last few years. And Yeah, that's a great time to be hunting. Oh, it's my favorite time. People are catching on to it now more than they used to. It used to be that I had to hold woods myself uh, opening week here in Wisconsin. Um, but you're starting to see a lot more. You're starting to see a lot more of our uh, our biggest bucks, our state records and stuff coming from opening week. It makes sense. There's probably as disarmed as they are all season. They're relatively predictable that time of year. So there's a lot of things going for the hunters in early September. Yeah, I mean, what people got to remember is is I still see a lot more bucks and a lot more good bucks. I see a lot of good bucks during rut. I'm talking about the very top end ones, and you're talking about five, six, seven years old. I don't think they're stupid enough to be chasing does all over open fields and stuff during rut. Sure. Well, Dan, I want to thank you for your time. I want to be respectful of that time. Uh, but before we wrap up, for people that aren't already familiar with you, which I can't imagine the whole lot of people these days, but where can they find you on? <laughs> where can they find you on social media? And are you going to any shows this spring where people might catch you at a show? Yeah, you can. You can find me on uh, YouTube's my big outlet. So, uh, our YouTube channel is huge. You can find me on Rumble. You can find me on, uh, uh the hunting beast website is, is a pretty good spot. Uh, I'm on Facebook shows. We're going to the Wisconsin Dells show. Uh, we're going to be doing seminars there. Um, 
we're doing seminars at the uh, Columbus, Ohio show. Uh, both of those are in uh, early to mid-March. Um, and then we're going to go to the uh, Mobile Hunters Northern show, which is in Michigan this year. All right. Um, and we're going to do live shows there. So that should be fun. Well, Dan, I want to thank you for your time. Appreciate it as always. And we will catch you on a future episode, hopefully. All right. It's fun getting on.